0: Welcome to the City Church Podcast. We hope that you will be abundantly blessed by this message. If you would like to find out more about the city, please log on to our website, www.thecity.sg. Alright, so we're going to start our series, Final Words from the Cross, and I'm super excited to begin this, and i super excited for Easter that's coming up. Easter is my favorite uh, non holiday and uh, I tell you man, sing songs about the cross and remember jesus it 's good fun and um, today i I want to start by um, reading a, a passage of scripture from luke chapter twenty three and and the, the whole uh, concept of uh, this series that we 're doing is we are exploring the seven final things that Jesus said as he hung on the cross, and traditionally. You know, these seven final sayings have been uh, condensed into seven words. And over the next seven weeks, we're going to look at each of these words. How many of you know that, you know, on the deathbed and, and as a person is dying and, or as death approaches, a person's final words has tremendous meaning. Am yeah. making sense to you? It has significant meaning, you know, and it's something that we should pay attention to and something that we should take note of, amen? Come on, respond, Amen. No, and so this is what we're going to do. We're going to look at the seven sayings, condense it to seven words, and explore each word over each week. And uh, we're going to conclude the series on Easter Sunday. So the first thing it's actually found in Luke chapter twenty-three, and can we have the verse up? It says this: "It says, and when they had come to the place called Calvary, did there they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right hand." and the other on the left. Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. And this is the first of seven sayings that Jesus said on the cross. You know, we're going to go through each one, each week, but this is the first one. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. How many of you were here in service when I spoke on forgiveness about a year ago? How many of you were here? Yes, good chunk of you. How many of you were not here? Not here. Great. This is for you. Um, this morning, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to speak on forgiveness, you know, and a lot of the things that I'm going to cover today, I've actually covered a year ago, but I feel like this sermon to me is like a tune-up message. You know, I, I would print out the notes every couple of months or so and just read through it and, and reevaluate my life on whether I've been walking out this core value well. You know, and so I, I think this is something, you know, critical and something that as believers, we are called to model, we will call... To walk in, and so this is what we're going to talk about this morning: forgiveness. Before we begin, let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for the privilege of hearing from your word. Lord, we thank you that in your word is life, in your word is the power for transformation. And God, we come today to your word with great expectation of all that you're going to do. Lord, we come to you with the, the knowing that when we look and explore Your Word, God, that our hearts will be impacted. And so, God, we ask that even today, through the preaching of Your Word, that our lives will be transformed, never the same again, that it's not the by the eloquence of my speech, but it's by Your Holy Spirit that lives are transformed. So, God, we ask for Your Spirit to rest upon this place in great measure to bring about transformation. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And so, our sermon begins today... Uh, from a story of this man, and this man's name is Fyodor Dostoevsky. Nailed it. I've been trying to pronounce this word for a whole week. Fyodor Dostoevsky. Thank you so much. At the age of 27, Fyodor Dostoevsky was arrested for belonging to a subversive intellectual group in Tsarist Russia and was sentenced to death by firing squad. After being taken to the execution site, he was blindfolded and placed before the firing squad. Dramatically, at the very last moment, the sentence was commuted to five years' hard labor in Siberia. He later said that he felt as though his life had suddenly been given back to him. Upon arrival at the Siberian labor camp, a woman gave him a New Testament, the only book he would have for the next five years. During his prison years of acute suffering, Dostoevsky turned to the New Testament time and again, and especially to the Gospel of John, to find comfort. It was during his prison years that Dostoyevsky came to have faith in Jesus Christ as the Savior of the world, a faith that would be expressed in his subsequent literary masterpieces in profound ways. Dostoyevsky wrote a novel called The Idiot, and in The Idiot was a Christ-like character by the name of Prince Mishkin. And Prince Mishkin would often make this Particular, peculiar statement that was stunned uh, theologians and Christian thinkers for years and this statement was this Prince Mishkin would say beauty would save the world beauty will save the world this mysterious phrase has fascinated Christian thinkers and theologians ever since and has inspired scores of papers essays and lectures on what it might mean years later a nobel uh, Nobel winner would lecture on it and says this. He'll say that Nobel lecture by the name of Alexander Solzhenitsyn. In his Nobel lecture on literature, said this about it. He said, Dostoevsky's remark, beauty will save the world was not a careless phrase, but a prophecy. Beauty will save the world was not a careless phrase, but a prophecy. You know, I've shared this quote before and One of my favorite quotes of all time is from a man named Brian Zahn, and he says this. He says, our task is not to protest the world into a certain moral conformity, but to attract the world to the saving beauty of Jesus Christ. To attract the world to the saving beauty of Jesus Christ. I want to expand your understanding of what beauty actually does. I want to redefine what beauty is to you. Beauty to me is, is this. Beauty is an attraction of the soul that raises an invitation to enter Beauty is an attraction of the soul that raises an invitation to enter it's, me- it's meant to make our hearts beat faster. It's meant to clear up our minds. It's meant to stir our soul, stir our spirit. That is what beauty does for you and me. Beauty to attract them to the saving beauty of Jesus Christ. We read in Mark's Gospel of a Roman officer who stood at the foot of the cross as Jesus was being crucified. And at the end of the crucifixion, the Roman soldier looked up, the slain Messiah, and he said, truly, this man must be the Son of God. He came to a stunning declaration, a Roman officer. And to put it in context, you must understand that the Roman officer has probably seen thousands of crucifixion in in, in his day. It's probably his job to be part of this process on a daily basis. And he's seen crucifixions over and over and over again. It's probably sick and tired of the process. But he looks upon Jesus who was just crucified, and he came to this stunning conclusion. Truly, this man must be the Son of God. And that brings about a question of how did this man come to a conclusion in that manner? How did this man come to such a conclusion? He's probably seen crucifixions, uh, thousands of them. But what was so different about Jesus' crucifixion that led to that stunning confession? What was so different about the way Jesus was crucified? What was so different about the way Jesus carried Himself as He was crucified that led to that stunning confession? Might it be that Jesus died loving and forgiving His enemies? The Roman centurion standing guard at the cross had undoubtedly witnessed many crucifixions. He knew how crucified men died, and they did not die with a prayer of love and forgiveness on their lips. The battle hardened Roman soldier standing at the foot of a Roman cross instinctively recognized this kind of love as from another world. His only explanation was that truly, this man must be from another world. Truly, this man must be divine. Truly, this man must be the Son of God. And the Roman soldier experienced beauty. He experienced this thing where his soul was stirred. His mind was cleared in the moment he experienced beauty on that cross. And it's, it's so weird to, to ascribe beauty to such an ugly picture, to such a grotesque picture. You know, one of my favorite quotes, it says, it says that, that being disguised under the disfigurement of an ugly crucifixion and death, Christ upon the cross is paradoxically the clearest revelation of who God is. This is the great paradox of the Christian faith, that beauty is found in the cross. Beauty is found in the cross. Beauty that attracts our soul, that invites us, into intimacy. We must understand that the Roman cross was such a sick and grotesque picture. It was devised to be the most hideous spectacle in the world. It was a sight so ugly and horrifying that it will be permanently seared into the, the, into the minds of anyone who witnessed that very act. 2000 years ago, it will be utterly inconceivable that a Roman cross would someday be an object of beauty, an icon of grace, inspiring artistic creativity. The Roman cross was the gallows, the guillotine, the electric chair, the lethal injection table of its day, except it was infinitely more gruesome. It will someday become a symbol of faith, love, and beauty. The Roman cross itself was saved and redeemed because of what Christ did upon the cross. Instead of hurling curses and calling for revenge while He died on the cross, Jesus Christ forgave from the cross. And the act of dying forgiveness, vindicated by the resurrection, sealed the fate of the Roman cross. In time, the cross would cease to be an ugly image, but instead become a symbol of love and forgiveness and beauty. Beauty will save the world. Beauty would save the world. It's the beauty of forgiveness. It's the beauty of not retaliating. It's the beauty of even in the most dire circumstance, even in the midst of injustice, forgiveness is possible. And that beauty that was displayed on the cross, that was witnessed by a Roman soldier, led to the stunning conclusion that truly this man must be the Son of God. Forgiveness is what draws the world into the mercy of Christ. It lies at the heart of the Christian faith. From the adulterous woman who deserved to be stoned, to the Lord's Prayer, to Jesus on the cross, to the Apostles' Creed, it is very much what Christianity is about. Forgiveness is what makes the cross and Christianity beautiful. But get this, it's not just between God and man, but between man and man. During the Armenian Genocide of 1915, one and a half million Armenians were murdered by the Ottoman Turks and millions more were raped, brutalized and forcibly deported. From the Armenian Genocide comes a famous story of a Turkish army officer who led a raid upon the home of an Armenian family. The parents were killed, the daughters were raped, the girls were then given to the soldiers. The officer kept the oldest daughter for himself. Eventually, this girl was able to escape and later train to become a nurse. In an ironic twist of faith, she found herself working in a ward for wounded Turkish army officers. One night, by the dim glow of a lantern, she saw among her patients the face of the man who had murdered her parents and so horribly abused her, sisters, and herself. Without exceptional nursing, he would die. And that is what the Armenian nurse gave, exceptional care. As the officer began to recover, a doctor pointed to the nurse and told the officer, if it weren't for this woman, you would be dead. The officer looked at the nurse and said, have we met? She replied, yes. After a long silence, the officer asked, why didn't you kill me? Why didn't you kill me? The Armenian Christian replied, I am a follower of him who said, Love your enemies. For this Christian, no further explanation was necessary. For her, forgiveness was not an option, it was a requirement. For her, forgiveness was not an option, it was a requirement. For the believer, can I suggest to you, forgiveness is not an option, it's a requirement. Freely you've received, now freely you're called to give. You know, we've all entered into the Christian faith to find forgiveness. Forgiveness from our past, forgiveness from our mistakes, forgiveness from our sin. And can I suggest to you that if by the way of forgiveness is how you entered into the Christian faith, then perhaps the way of forgiveness is how you carry on walking in this faith. That's why Paul says we ought to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. We were saved because of the forgiveness of Christ. Can I put it to you that we walk out this thing we call the Christian faith by embracing the centrality of forgiveness. Am I making sense to you this morning? As people who profess to be disciples of Christ, we have to ask ourselves, what is that which Christ modeled on the earth that we are to do as well? If we read the Gospels, we will find that every interaction that Christ had with people is about love and forgiveness. Love and forgiveness. And that is what we are called to model and carry. Matthew chapter 5, you know, we commonly you know, refer to it as the Sermon on the Mount. And I preached on it before and I call it you know, the Constitution of the Kingdom of God. It's the things that we value, the things that are core principles of Believers, it, it is what makes us distinctive as a people. It's what defines us as followers of Christ. And in Matthew chapter 5, verse 21, it says this. It says, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whoever says to his brother, Raca, shall be in danger of the council, but whoever says you fool, shall be in danger of hellfire. I know I've said worse things than you fool, you know. Scary. Next verse, in 1 John, it says this. It says, Whoever hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Scary, scary verses. Confronting. In verses, we often conveniently skip over. But this is what the Bible says. The Bible says that when you carry unforgiveness, when you bear an offense, when you harbor hate against another, when you're angry without a cause against another, you're like a murderer. You're like a murderer. And you know, we, we have to view this verse in the context to which it was written. It was written in the context of a Roman rule. And here's the Roman punishment for murderers, one of the many. Romans back then were extremely sick and evil people, and they devised many different kinds of ways to punish people for the different crimes. And one of the punishments that was dished out to people who were murderers was they would take the corpse of the person that they've murdered and carry it and chain that corpse to the person face to face, hand to hand, feet to feet. And the person's sentence was to walk the remainder of his life chained to a dead and dying corpse. And over time, the corpse would stiffen and harden and he wouldn't, the person would lose his mobility almost. Over time, the, the, the toxins that were produced from the decomposition of the body would seep into the skin of the, of the person that's still alive and would slowly kill him the stench of the decomposing body would alienate the person from all sense of community. That's the picture of unforgiveness. That's the picture of harboring offense. You're carrying around a dead corpse. You won't be, you, it, it stiffens up. You, you're not able to move as much. You're, you're hindered from getting to where you need to go. It alienates you from all sense of community. Have you ever hung out with an offended person? Do you realize an offended person gets offended at other things and (laughs) it's not a really fun person to hang out with? Get alienated from community and the stench of unforgiveness, the decomposition of the body will one day kill that person. See the difference... From that picture, and the difference is is that, you know, the keys that locked those shackles were in the hands of the Roman officials. But the keys to the shackles that chain you to the body of death, to the body of unforgiveness is in your hands. You have a choice to whether you want to let go. To be an authentic follower of Jesus, we must embrace the centrality of forgiveness in the Christian faith. The Christian faith is the ministry of forgiveness, or as Paul puts it, the ministry of reconciliation. I want to read to you another quote from Brian. It says this. It says, We forget that when we see Christ dead upon the cross, we discover a God who would rather die than kill His enemies. We forget that we see Christ dead upon the cross, we discover a God who would rather die and kill his enemies. And the famous story that, that emerged from the filming of The Passion of Christ, which I assume we've all seen is Mel Gibson, the director, uh, in the scene where the Roman soldiers were about to nail Jesus on the cross, he actually stepped in and he said, you know, I can get an actor to do this, but I actually want to be in this scene and be the man who's nailing Jesus onto the cross. Because Mel re- recognizes, this, he realized that it was not the Roman soldiers who nailed Jesus on the cross, but it was all of humanity, our collective sin, put Him on the cross. We were once dead in our transgressions, we were once enemies of the kingdom. But because of Christ, His forgiveness and His love toward us, we're now saved and redeemed. The enemy of the cross was not just the Roman soldier. The enemies mentioned you and me. Dead in our sin. Dead in our transgressions. Enemies of the kingdom. Jesus knew that more violence and revenge will lead to more enemies. So he proposed the idea that we eliminate enemies not by revenge, but we Eliminate enemies by unconditional love and forgiveness. Unconditional love and forgiveness. And this is how revenge works. Revenge always starts out from unforgiveness. It's unforgiveness that leads to offense, that that leads to some form of revenge, some form of retaliation, and leads to hurt. And the person who is hurt would then bear unforgiveness, take on offense, and then partake in revenge and lead to more hurt. And this is a never-ending cycle. But Jesus on the cross, instead of harboring offense, instead of retaliating towards those who crucified Him, He forgave and effectively broke that cycle. As Christians... That is what the ministry of reconciliation looks like. That is what the ministry of forgiveness looks like. It looks like us never partaking of that vicious cycle, but choosing to break that cycle every opportunity we get to do so. To not retaliate, to not partake in revenge, but choosing to release love and forgiveness, even when the person doesn't deserve it. The kind of forgiveness that Jesus modeled was a forgiveness... That was not uh, uh, dependent on what the person did. It was unconditional. That's the kind of forgiveness that Jesus offers to you and me. While we were yet sinners, Christ died on the cross for you and me. Before you even did a single thing for Him, He gave His life for you. That is the kind of forgiveness that Christ demonstrated. I want to read another story. On May 13, 1981, Mehmet Ali Agaqa, a Turkish Muslim, approached Pope John Paul II as he travelled in an open motorcade through St Peter's Square in Rome. Standing only a few feet away, Ali Agaqa fired a gun several times, critically wounding the Pope as four bullets struck his torso, right arm and left hand. Ali Agaqa was immediately apprehended and the gravely injured Pope was rushed to the hospital. He would spend 22 days in the hospital recovering from the attack. In his first statement following the attempted assassination, John Paul requested that people pray for my brother, Ali Agaka, whom I have sincerely forgiven. Two years later, John Paul II visited Ali Agaka in prison. In a private room, the two men sat knee-to-knee, face-to-face. The Pope, holding the hand of his would-be assassin, and forgiving him like the attempted assassination this act of forgiveness was an event reported around the world and now there are two iconic photographic images that emerge from these two dramatic encounters of pope john paul ii and Mehmet Ali aliaga the first is a photograph of the shocked face of pope john paul ii his papal robe splattered with blood just after being shot the second is a photograph of the shocked face of Mehmet Ali Agaqa as the Pope met with him in prison and forgave him. In both pictures, a shocked face seems to be asking the same question. Why? Two iconic images, two questioning faces. The first registering the shock of being the victim of unexpected and undeserved violence. The second registering the shock of being the recipient of unexpected and undeserved violence forgiveness. The second picture, the one of John Paul II forcibly forgiving a a visibly shaken Ali Agaka was on the cover of the January 9th, 1984 issue of Time magazine with the caption, Why forgive? Over the next 20 years, the Pope not only befriended Ali Agaka, but his family as well. And when he was released from prison in 2006, he held aloft a copy of the famous Time Magazine, and called the man he tried to murder his friend. I cannot think of a better contemporary example of a Christian imitating Christ than the Pope's forgiveness of Ali Agaka. Christian recording artist Steve Taylor wrote a song about Pope John Paul II and member Ali Agaka which addresses the question posed on the cover of Time Magazine, Why Forgive? It goes... I saw a man who was holding the hand that had fired a gun at his heart. I saw the eyes and the look of surprise as he left an indelible mark. Follow his lead. Let the madness recede when we shatter the cycle of pain. Come find release. Go make your peace. I saw a man with a hole in his hand who could offer the miracle cure. Oh, where we leave to forgive. Ali Agakha fired bullets of hate into the body of John Paul II. And though the bullets almost took the Pope's life, the hate never touched his soul. He responded with whispered words of love and forgiveness that lodged into the soul of Ali Agakha. These words transformed the troubled man. Why indeed, the Pope's whispered words of pardon to his would-be assassin proclaimed to the world, This is what Jesus looks like. This is what Christianity is. This is what Christians do. Pope John forgave even though Agaka didn't deserve it. The kind of forgiveness that Jesus demonstrated on the cross is one that forgives even when we don't deserve it. That's the kind of forgiveness that we are tomorrow. That's the kind of forgiveness that we are called to display. To present unconditional love, even when it's not deserved. You know, as a church, we've been really adept at, at, at and really great at teaching people how to do Christianity. You know, come into uh, the church and find forgiveness, find freedom. Receive the blood of Jesus. Come and and pray the prayers and come find your release. But we haven't been great at teaching people how to be Christian. How to be disciples of Christ. How to follow Him who said, love your enemies. And this is the call, and this is, what I believe makes us distinctive as a people, much like it made the cross of Jesus distinctive apart any other cross. This is what makes us unique as a people. We forgive. We love. Even when people don't deserve it. That's what makes us Christians. When Jesus said, pick up, your cross and follow me. It was not a literal, physical cross. Come on. He meant the way of the cross, the governing principle and revelation of the cross, which I believe is mercy triumphs judgment. Forgiveness is the way to transformation. Love wins. And I wonder if the sufferings that are attributed to picking up a cross and following Him are not so much physical sufferings, but the pain of that emotion of having to forgive even when a person doesn't deserve it, even when a person doesn't even ask for it? Could that be the pain and the suffering of the cross that we're called to partake of? Not whipping ourselves senselessly, but forgiving every opportunity we get. And And in doing so, knowing that every time we choose to forgive in the face of injustice, we look the most like Jesus. Canadian theologian and pastor Brad Jersack reminds us, Christ's teachings and Christ's death on the cross are not two separate issues. Christ's way, the narrow path, is the road of loving and forgiving even unto death. And he didn't say, let me do that for you. He said, come, die with me. Forgiveness is what we're supposed to do. It's hard and tough, but it is, but it is Christian. It is Christian. And today as as I close, I want to talk about five empowering beliefs on forgiveness. And I believe these beliefs have the power to break certain false mindsets and false barriers that you've put up that hinders you from walking life of forgiveness. Bible says that it is the truth that sets us free. And there are certain areas where we are bound and held up Because we have embraced certain lies and certain false beliefs when it comes to God's Word. And today I want to present five empowering beliefs on forgiveness as I close. Number one, forgiveness is not a means of endorsement. It's a choice to love. Forgiveness is not a means of endorsement. It's a choice to love. When Jesus forgave the adulterous woman, He didn't endorse her sin. He didn't tell her, continue doing what you've been doing all along. It's cool. It's fine. I love you. No, it wasn't a means of endorsement, but he chose to love. And many times, this is how we perceive forgiveness. I can only forgive a person if the person is making some kind of progress towards change. And we actually hold back and we keep this love that is... That is really the, 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 the agent that brings about transformation and change in a person. We hold back the answer almost and we're like, get your stuff together before I love you. Not knowing that our love for the person, our acceptance, our unconditional love is actually the agent and the catalyst to bring about change in a person's life. Yeah. And that's the kind of love that Jesus offered to sinners. He didn't say, get your stuff together before I love you. He said, I love you. I love you no matter what. And in doing so, in them experiencing the love of Christ, they came to a place where they repented from their sin and walked differently. The question of the hour is, have we done that well? Are there people around us that are struggling with certain issues, with certain sins, with certain bad habits, with certain things they've embraced? And... Our way of bringing them into freedom is, let me me punish them. Let me punish them by alienating them from community. Let me punish them by withholding my love, not knowing that in doing so, we leave them stuck in whatever they've been battling with. Our love and our acceptance is the catalyst for change. Forgiveness is not a means of endorsement. It's a choice to love. The sad truth is the church is more associated today with the symbols of a furrowed brow, a clenched fist, a disapproving look, a wagging figure, as opposed to the symbol of the cross of forgiveness. It's not a means of endorsement. It's a choice to love. Next one. Forgiveness is not a one-time event. It's a continuous process. Forgiveness is not a one-time event. It's a continuous process. You know, I've said this story before, but I remember as a young man, um, we have uh, many fun altar calls that we, go, that we will go to, and uh, and uh, one of the speakers came in uh, one Sunday, and he was preaching on the, the subject of unforgiveness, of bearing offense, and he was like, I want all of you, the entire youth ministry, to come to the front of the altar. And, uh, and then he said, you know, that, that, you know, all of you are like David. You know, you've had spears thrown at you, spears of offense, spears of, of pain, spears of unforgiveness. And, uh, and you know, he, he then charged us, okay, I want all of you to pull out the metaphorical spears. And as you do so, yell the name of the person who offended you. And so we did that as a youth ministry. I remember one of my friends. He he stood there and uh, he was just minding his own business. Was like I'm okay. I have no one to forgive. Uh, to you know, I have no one. That I'm being offensive. I'm a pretty cool person. And and as he was standing there, he heard his name yelled out in the altar call. And he was like, "Wow!" And then he looked over and he just pulled out a spear for that guy, who took an offensive. And but how many of you know that? Though powerful and act, it, it might be you know in the altar, and it probably brought breakthrough and deliverance to to a lot of people. But you know, forgiveness is not a one time event, right? Yeah. You know, it looks like you recognizing that hey, the stones of accusation are in front of me, and you make a con- conscious and continuous decision to never pick up the stone, yeah. no matter what thoughts might come, no matter what opportunity might come in front of you, but you choosing not. To bear that offense, you choosing not to retaliate when you have an opportunity to. It's not a one time event, it's a continuous process. Next one Forgiveness is not an end to pain, it's a road to healing. Forgiveness is not an end to pain, it's a road to healing. See, many times we think that once I forgive, I will no longer feel this hurt this pain of whatever happened to me. It's not true. You know, when you are, are injured and you go to see the doctor and the doctor, you know, puts on the band puts on, you know, stitches if it needs be, you don't go back home and like, oh my gosh, I still feel pain. I need more stitches. Or I, I still feel pain. I need to put more band on it. No, you recognize that, hey, I got the help I needed. Now I just need to wait for it to heal. It's not an end of pain. It's a road to healing. Am I making sense to you? Yeah. Healing involves walking through pain. It doesn't mean that if you're numb to pain that it doesn't exist. We need to confront it and deal with our pain. That's why Jesus said, Blessed is he who mourns, for he shall be comforted. Forgiveness is the only way we get on the road to healing. Next point. Forgiveness keeps no record of wrong. It restores the standard. Forgiveness keeps no record of wrong. It restores the standard. You know, whenever I do something wrong and I make Amy angry, uh, you know, and, and you know we'll have our heated discussions and most of the time I'll find that, okay, I'm being very annoying. And so... Um, and so, you know, I will apologize most of the time. I'll say, I will say um, I'm sorry. And uh, I think really early on in our relationship, she'll say, it's okay. And then she'll move on. You know, but I learned, uh, you know, from preaching the Bible and reading the Word of God, that you have to ask a person to forgive you. And, uh, and, and I'm like, no, 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 you can't just say you, it's okay. You have to forgive me. You have to forgive me. And she's like, okay, I forgive you. And here's what forgiveness does. It, it restores the standard. It restores the standard. You know, the Bible, you know, when it talks about repent, right? Repent you know, from mm-hmm. your sins. The word repent has uh, several meanings, but the word repent in English literally means to re-come back pent, like penthouse, come back to the top. It restores you, right? And so, this is what forgiveness does. Forgiveness, okay, once you have received it, you no longer have right or authority to bear that offense anymore. You don't. You lose the right and authority because when you forgive, you're essentially saying that this is resolved, closed, I'm restoring you to the standard and I no longer hold that offense against you. That means you can't do the, you know, uh, last time uh, you do this, uh, you know, that time uh, you say this one, uh, you know, uh, that time, uh, you cannot bring that up anymore. It's done, it's over and done with. i yeah, making sense. That's why in Hebrews 8, it says that, that you know, John quoted earlier, it says, He keeps no record of our wrong. He forgives you. He washed you with His blood. He's not keeping a book full of your transgressions. In 1994, He committed a lie. He doesn't do that anymore. When He cleansed you, He cleans you once and for all. He keeps no record of your wrong. And neither should you do, the, do that to another. You don't have a right to. Once you forgive, it's over and done with. Am making sense? Come on. Next one. Forgiveness is not forgetting. It's a conscious act. Forgiveness is not forgetting. It's a conscious act. And this is our last one. You know, how many of you have heard the phrase, you know, forgive and forget? You know, to forgive is to forget. You know, I, I don't really buy that. No, forget. Forgetting is not something that you can do of your own will. You no, know, it happens over time, right? It's almost passive. Almost like I'll just forget it. You know, but you can't really like I'll forget it. You know, and most of the time when you try to forget it, you end up remembering it, right? <laughs> That's the way it happens. See, forgetting is passive, but forgiveness is active. It's different. It's totally not the same. Forgetting only happens over time. It's involuntary and you really have no control and no part to play in that. Forgiveness is not like that. Contrary, forgiveness actually allows you to remember. It doesn't call you to forget. It allows you to remember. Picture the cross of Christ. Brutal, ugly, gruesome. Today, we call it beautiful. We sing songs about it. Oh, wonderful cross. That which was a a form of execution, that which was brutal. We call it beautiful today. And that is what forgiveness does. It forms beauty from ashes. And now we can remember. We look back at these moments, though painful, though, though hard, but we see the grace of God we see triumph, we see victory. Forgiveness doesn't cause us to forget, it calls us to remember. And it has the ability to change tragedy into triumph. Tragedy into beauty. The history of the cross is not obliterated through forgiveness. It retains its history of death. But the identity of the cross is transformed by forgiveness. The same is true for the sinner. The forgiveness of the cross does not obliterate the history of the sinner but transforms the sinner in the same way that the cross is transformed from an emblem of ugliness into an icon of beauty. So Christ's forgiving love transforms the sinner to a work of art, into a work of beauty. I'm making sense to you this morning. In closing, I want to read one final story. The story is from a place called Nickel Mines. Charles Roberts was a 32-year-old dairy truck driver in Pennsylvania. He and his wife Amy had three young children. The family attended church, but Roberts was a deeply bitter man. Nine years ago, earlier, their firstborn child or daughter had died 20 minutes after her birth. Of course, Charles grief. Nevertheless, Charles Roberts could have had a good life with his loving wife and their three children. He instead allowed Bitterness and offense over the death of his daughter to consume him and, be, and turn him into a monster, a ticking time bomb. Roberts was angry with God, angry with life, and angry with himself. In his mind, someone had to pay. Payback was the foundational t- ideology by which Roberts related to God and to others when a wrong was suffered. Payback was the only option. And since Roberts could not exact his vengeance directly upon God and make God pay. He would instead make other innocent young girls pay for the death of his infant daughter. Unspeakable evil had invaded tranquility and brought life-shedding tragedy to the Amish community of nickel mines. It came in the most hideous form of all, child sacrifice, the slaughter of the innocents. Ten little girls shot in the head, five dead, five in critical condition. It doesn't get any worse than that, and this could have been the end of the story. It could have been only the horror story of a madman and his senseless massacre. As the world shuddered from the news of the nickel mine's tragedy, the world would soon be stunned by a demonstration of radical forgiveness. Forgiveness that transcended tragedy. Within hours of the killings, a group of men from the Amish community went to Amy Roberts' house to express forgiveness. They brought gifts of food to Amy and children, telling Amy that they had forgiven her husband and held no animosity toward her. They also promised to help her in the future by providing for her for what she might need. Later that evening, an Amish man visited Charles Roberts' father to offer his comfort. He stood there for an hour and he held that man in his arms and said, we forgive you. In the days following, Robert's parents received many more visits from the members of the Amish community, offering condolences and expressing forgiveness. Five days later, when Robert's family gathered to bury the gunman in the cemetery of Georgetown United Methodist Church, more than half of the 75 mourners were from the Amish community. Some of the Amish mourners who gathered around Amy Roberts and offered her hugs of support were parents who just days earlier had buried their own children. The Amish Act of Forgiveness changed the storyline coming out from Nickel Mines. Instead of the Nickel Mines tragedy, media outlets began to speak of the Nickel Mines miracle. Forgiveness changed the storyline from the horror of murder to the miracle of forgiveness. That is what forgiveness does. It turns the pain of offense into beauty, into something worth remembering. You can take tragedy and turn it into a miracle. That is a great paradox of our faith. Our faith is one filled with paradoxes. Jesus, the Prince of Peace, whose crown was made of thorns, whose throne was a cross, whose acclamation was a mockery, whose triumph was a crucifixion, and whose kingdom was won not by the shedding of enemy blood, but by the shedding of His own blood. The Prince calls His followers to pick up their own crosses and follow Him, which means nothing less than following His way of doing things. It is the way of the donkey, the towel, and the cross. The way of humility, service. And suffering. Forgiveness, not retaliation, is the way of the cross. Forgiveness can take tragedy and turn it into triumph, tragedy and turn it into a miracle. Beauty from ashes. Can we all stand? the great paradox of the Christian faith that under the disfigurement and sheer gruesomeness of the cross that we find the greatest beauty ever revealed to man. Then in His dying breath, the Savior chose to forgive, the Savior chose to love, the Savior chose to stand in the gap for His enemies, to stand in the gap for those who transgressed against Him. A Savior chose to forgive even in the most dire, painful of circumstance. And the goal of the Christian is to become more Christ-like. The goal of the disciple is to follow He who disciples us. And today, my suggestion to you is that Christians ought to be the most forgiving people on the planet Christians ought to love like no other Christians ought to offer acceptance Christians ought to break the cycle of revenge and end pain every opportunity they get Christians ought to look the most like their Messiah under the disfigurement of the cross It is paradoxically the clearest revelation of Christ. In the midst of pain, forgiveness is what makes us Christian. So I'm going to ask for every eye to be closed and every head to be bowed, even now. And Before we move on any further, I want to give this call. No, the kingdom principle is this. Freely you've received, now freely give. And there might be some of you here this morning, you might have done certain things, you might have indulged in certain things, you might be battling with sin even right now. And These are things hidden. These are things that no one really knows, no one really has an awareness of. These are things that you have kept in the dark but have, has eaten you up and has made you less of a person. This morning, I'm going to give you an opportunity to ask for forgiveness. And knowing that this forgiveness is really for your sake, that when you experience the forgiveness of God, His grace comes rushing in like a flood and restores you and makes you whole again. That you no longer have to battle with shame shame You don't have to battle with darkness anymore. You get to be free in a moment. If you're willing to confess and be forgiven. So if every eye closed, every head bowed, in your own way, I want you to begin to confess. If there's anything that needs to be confessed, I want you to connect with the Lord even right now just go to Him Bible says that we can approach His throne of grace with all boldness because Christ has made the way so Jesus we ask for your forgiveness to come right now the grace of God to flood this place God, we confess every hidden sin. God, we confess for the times we've disobeyed. God, we confess for the times we've wandered from your purpose. God, we confess we are in need of a Savior. God, we ask for your forgiveness even right now. In Jesus' name, let your grace flood this place like a mighty river. In Jesus' name. Jesus' name. I'm going to give a second call and I want to say again, I want every eye to be closed and every head to be bowed. You know, if whatever I'm saying today speaks to you and you're in some way battling with an offense with another person and you're struggling to forgive, it might be something that happened when you're a child, it might be something that happened fairly recently and you're struggling to forgive and you need strength you're struggling to offer that love that's unconditional every eye closed and every head bow if that is you this morning and you need help you need help getting over that offense I want you to gently lift your hands and I'll pray for you every eye closed every head bow if that is you this morning I want you to gently lift your hands thank you I see your hands thank you thank you I see your hands thank you I'm just going to wait for a little while longer If you are battling with offense, unforgiveness. Thank you. I see your hands. Thank you. Okay, you can put them down. God, we ask for your grace to come upon this place even right now. Your grace that is not just a feeling or emotion, but your grace which is the empowerment of heaven. God, we ask for divine empowerment right now to live the life that you have called us to live. God, we ask for the empowerment of heaven even now to cause us to become more like you. God, we ask that you will use us as conduits of your love to release your love, your acceptance, your forgiveness to a world who so desperately longs for it. And God, we ask that even in our own lives that we would model what it means to be a forgiving people. So, for the specific offenses that are represented here today, I prophesy the grace of God to come upon that situation. That that era will no longer be a stronghold of the devil, but it'll be a signpost that will point people to the reality of a God who loves and forgives. That your offenses will no longer be something that you hide about, that you put aside, that you leave in darkness, but your offenses will become stories of victory, stories of triumph that will point people to the reality of the Messiah, of the one who saves and forgives.